such an L fail. Okay. How do I get my, my mic cord? Boom. That is such an L. This usually doesn't happen. Why is this thing so long? Okay. Like, what am I trying to plug? Oh no, that's, that side is used. What am I trying to plug this into? Like who, who puts their mic that they need to plug their mic into? That's just ridiculous if you're trying to do that. Okay, but now we're live. So, as you can see, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. So, I just, Lexi told me that I ran out of Q&A clips. So, that's what we're doing today. I'm doing a surprise Q&A because Lexi told me you guys ask bad questions, which Hassan also told me that. So, for, for Lexi and Hassan's sake, please ask better questions. And yes, Lexi just heard her name, so she opened the door. She says, she says you guys ask terrible questions, so you need to ask better questions. Just the last stream. Just the last stream. Okay. So this stream, you guys need to ask better questions, or Lexi's going to be very disappointed in you. But I have some comments where people are not only thanking me now, but they're also thanking Lexi for the clips. So she, uh, she says, you're welcome. So... Oh my, it's starting to fill up. But before that, while while I let all of you fill up, uh, all of you fill up, while I let the live chat fill up, I'm going to, uh, I, I read, I saw this video earlier. Oh man, oh man, I watched this video earlier and it was like this Muslim thing on the Trinity. And I, I'm looking for a video to review tomorrow and I've none, I, I've found no videos that were worthy of review, so I don't know what I'm going to do, but I did find this one. This one was this one is worthy of review, but only like a minute long. So I figured I'd kind of sneak it in here at the beginning, you know, funny video. So I will. Uh, For example, we had to make 30 phone calls, okay? And if we didn't do well, it, what is this? Feeling out of it? Better help. Try therapy? No. Nah. Do you guys believe that Jesus is God, or do you, yes. do you believe he was sent by God? Yes, I believe he was sent by God, and he was sent by God because of the communication of will that happens with the communication of essence in the beginning of the Son, which is called the mission. So the mission of the Son is in his uh, being begotten. So yes, he is God, and he is also sent by God. And specifically when we're saying uh Sent by God, we mean um, God the Father. That's the subject of the sending, uh, because He is the the principle of begetting. 
Which one is it? So when he came here as a human, like we believe that he's a son of God. Like God sent him to be the like the messenger for us. Do I like the music in the background? No. Yeah. So, but like. Do you guys believe that Jesus is God? Or, yes. Or do you believe he was sent by God? Yes. And also, according to his humanity, we can speak of, um, we can also speak of information, too, um, of a different type, because it's not uh, grounded upon the eternal beginning. Which one is it? So, he's God. When he came in here yeah. as a human, yeah. so, like, believe, like, like, I don't know how to explain that, but... It's yes, let me ask random, random men on the street. <laughs> About about one of the greatest mysteries of of Christian theology, and, and it's about to get better. It's about to get better, even better. Like you know, it's, it's like, yeah, the Son of God, but it, it's in the same time he's God. You know what I'm saying? But no, he has no idea what you're saying, dude. I'm sorry. So you're saying that he's a Son of God, but at the same time he's also God. Yeah. When he came here as a human, like we believe that he's a Son of God. Like God sent him to be that like the messenger for us. So true. You know? Yeah. So, but like. So you said he was a messenger for you? Yeah, like, Jesus is a God. Yes, we believe that. Okay, so you're saying Jesus is God, okay. Yes. yes that's, that's but you're saying he's also the Son of God. Can you be both? Can you be the Son of God and can you be God? Yes, you can be God and the Son of God when there's a communication of essence. Because God is, um, so God is, in this sense, being used as something which is an essential name. Where when we talk about Jesus Christ being of God, we're actually that as a special name. Um, God specifically glossing as as uh, the God the Father. So you're using it in equivocal senses when you're asking that question. So when, when he was like a human, yes. yes. So he's like he's a God. Okay. Okay. So if you're the son of God, does that mean he has a father? Yes. No. Oh no, bro. <laughs> Dude, come on now. You're asking the guy who doesn't know that he has a father. Okay. Like basically, he's a God. Okay. So when he came to Earth, basically, you're saying that he is God, or is he the son of God? The son of God. Okay, so if he's the son of God on earth, does that mean that he has a father? The God. Not so, on earth. So you're saying God is his father? Yes. Okay. Wait, wait, he just said he wasn't. But you're saying that he is also God? Yes. Okay, so do you feel like that's, I feel like you're, does that make sense to you, right? That he's God, but he's also the son of God? Yes, if you have the proper distinctions. Like I told you, it's, it's, it's something like, uh, I don't know how to explain it in English, so. Yeah, like, so, so if I have people who speak Arabic, you can explain it. Because I genuinely. Yeah, 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 you're getting, <laughs> this is the funniest part of the video, and I'm going to, I'm going to stop it here. Um. But the the funniest part of the video is these guys. What these what these Muslims did is they went on the streets, found a random Christian who doesn't even speak English well, and asked him to explain the Trinity. Like most English speakers wouldn't be able to do that. Like, come on now, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Okay, so oh man, what is uh two thousand four to two thousand twelve tier? Oh the the yeah. Oh yeah, you should you should see some of some of their videos. It's kind of funny. I was uh I was going through some of them and <laughs> ooh these uh these videos are pretty pretty bad. Actually, I don't want to watch uh, the video again because I don't want to give them more more money. Okay. Yeah, I feel I feel the pain of this guy trying to explain the Trinity. Yes, exactly. Everybody feels the pain. It's a hard thing to do, especially when it's not your language and then you haven't really studied it too much. So, um, 
I plan on sharing a video of a person reacting to some crazy guys making insane arguments while reading awkwardly from cue cards where the person reacting can't help but laugh a little bit at their reading as it's funny and says it's as if they're held hostage. Would sharing be okay or is it disparaging the person or better or not? Seems innocent, trivial, plus the way it said is. I, this is an oddly specific question. I have no idea. Uh, could God make rational creatures purely made of what of water or is a complex biology required for rationality in principle Lexi said to stop asking bad questions guys I'm sorry <laughs> that is a very obscure question um the distinction I would make is that it's something which is uh which is physically possible um, for God to make rational creatures purely out of water. Um, yeah, I would say that would be, uh, and I'm using physically possible in, in its proper sense, uh, as opposed to metaphysically possible or, um, or morally possible. So, um, this, this is probably the, uh, first, uh, first two questions, most interesting, uh, questions I've gotten so far, but, uh, thank you for, thank you for that one. Um, so, how do I respond to vicious attacks against Our Lady based on exegesis of the term Queen of Heaven in Jeremiah 44? Okay, that's a that's a good question. That's a good question. I'm doing the King James Version because I'm based. Actually, I should do the Dewey Reams because they might actually have like a complete note about this. And Lexi, stop adding the first 30 seconds of my videos where I just spend forever trying to look for my sources. Okay. There we go. It's right here. Okay. Jeremiah 44, Dewey Reams. Then all the men that knew that their wives sacrificed to other gods and all the women of whom there stood by a great multitude and all the people of them that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Faturis answered Jeremiah saying, as for the word which thou hast spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken to thee, but we will certainly do every word that shall proceed out of our own mouth to sacrifice to the queen of heaven and to pour our drink offerings to her as we and our fathers have done, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah. And in the streets of Jerusalem, we were filled with bread, and it was well with us, and we saw no evil. But since we left out to offer sacrifice to the queen of heaven and to pour our drink offerings to her, we have waited, wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And if we offer sacrifice to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, did we make cake to worship her to pour out drink offerings to her without our husband? So basically what's happening is you have all of these women who were doing a bunch of bad idolatrous stuff, and they were worshiping the so-called Queen of Heaven, which was a pagan deity of the Canaanites. So is it licit to speak of a Queen of Heaven, since there's a, a deity which was named the Queen of Heaven? And I think this uh, this really does commit what's called the word concept fallacy. So it it's confusing the signification of a certain term with the term itself so queen of heaven in both of these cases 
is being used in equivocal senses. The one is signifying a certain pagan deity, and the other one is signifying Our Lady. Um, they, the only the only commonality they have is the certain sign. And to give another example is the god Baal. So with Baal, uh, that is a certain pagan deity which were uh, which was worshipped among the Canaanites. But if you look in Hosea, I want to say Hosea one and two, our Lord is actually described as Baal in there. Uh, if you look in Hebrew, I did a paper on uh, Hosea. Uh, I can't remember the exact verse. I think it was like the second half of chapter one, where uh, in there, our Lord is called Baal. So just because the the name is the same means absolutely nothing. And there is there are examples of uh, certain terms being used in commonality between a Christian and then pagan uh, deities or figures. So good question. And my wife did let me know also that that I say good question after every single question. So it's really hard for me to, for her to distinguish what's actually a good question, but this one actually a good question. Thoughts on Francis actually being a secret Chilean neo-pagan. Yes, I actually, uh, I saw the memes going around about the vestments that the Holy Father had when he went to Chile. And I was really interested because I was like, that is kind of weird that this is a pagan deity on the Holy Father's vestments. So I did a little uh, searching. I found a few people who are actually Chilean talking about it. And by now, it's nobody really worships the deity. It's kind of like a cultural symbol. Like you would have, for example, um, I, I did bring up the, the Christmas tree and people uh, cried about it. So I'll bring up a different example. Like we may have in Christian art in the Renaissance era you would often have pagan deities which would take the place of Christian virtues or would uh, not just not just actually telling the stories of the pagan deities, but these would actually take the place of Christian virtues and vices. Uh, so very interesting or certain uh, Christian symbols. Um, it would it would be appropriated for that use. So uh, I, I saw that certain Chileans were saying, yeah, people don't really worship um, this this God pagan deity anymore. It's kind of a cultural symbol that they've used. So um uh, uh, restore all things in Christ, uh, even if it's uh, Chilean pagan deities. We can do this. We did the same with a lot of Greco-Roman deities. So I, I don't understand why we can't do the same exact thing uh, if it's not actively being used as a as a pagan deity. So, yeah. the Christian Wagner Comedy Hour, so true. Yeah, I've thought about doing another chill stream. But I don't know. I don't know. The chill streams get a little too rowly sometimes, so I don't want to, you know. Maybe, maybe I'll do, like, I'll, I'll bring back, like, the $1 option or something on Patreon, I'll say. And um, and then I'll just stream chill streams from there. Because, I mean, it's it's enough to where it's, like, a bar of entrance, so people don't, you know. I, I, don't, I just don't want it, like, out there, like, on the page, you know. I don't want it, like, listed and everything. I don't want everybody to have like complete access to it. So does the Roman view of original sin include guilt or is it just corruption? Okay, that's a really good question. So when it comes to the Roman view of original sin, it's a privation and it's a privation of what's called original justice. So original justice is a, it's a, 
it's kind of a mixture between certain supernatural gifts, which I've explained supernatural many, many times, you guys. I'm not going to go through it again. Supernatural gifts, preternatural gifts, and then natural gifts, which cause man to be a to be a to be holy, to have to have a certain justice and to have a certain ordering uh, submitted to God and then also intrinsic ordering of his faculties. So with original sin, original sin is the is the law is is the privation or loss of that original justice so that we don't have an intrinsic ordering within ourselves and then uh, a submission to God. Now, it doesn't include guilt since it is something which is a privation of a certain gift and isn't an act of act of the will. So in order for something to be guilt, it needs to be an act of the will. So, yes, it is. Uh, it's a privation. It's it's corruption, but it's a corruption by way of privation. Um, Oh no, Franciscan Friars Colby Seminar Series and become a SCOTUS. No, no, I'm not becoming a SCOTUS. Okay, good question. Could we say that the Son is God's wisdom and the Spirit is God's power in life? Yes, but we have to be very careful with that sort of language because there's a distinction between what's called notional and essential um, wisdom and then love. Uh, you, you said power and life for the spirit, but usually it's love. So the son is God's wisdom, uh, in the sense that he is most properly said to be wisdom by his procession from the intellect of God. And then with the spirit, the spirit is called love and he, in that he is most properly called love because of his procession from the will of God. And if you're confused by that language of procession from intellect and procession from will, all that means is there's a distinction between uh, what's called the principal witch and the principal by which. So the principal witch, uh, if you think about human action, like I have this cup of coffee and I just drank it. So the principal which drank was me. Now the principal by which I drank was my mouth. So the the distinction is between uh, the person and then the power by which. So the the uh, son, the person uh, who begets the son, uh, the the active generator is the father, and then the father generates the son by the intellect. So the the son is a complete. Um, exhaustion uh, of of the uh, of the procession of the intellect of God, and then it's the same way with the Spirit. Except the pr the one principle is composed of two subjects: that is, the Father and the Son. Oh man, it made me go all the way down. Crap. Okay, I'm back up. Oh man. Okay, so I've been told that the church's current stance on gay marriage, abortion, women priests, and contraception contraceptives are not infallible and can be changed. Is this true? So we're going to need to make a distinction because there three of those are matters of morals, and then one of them is actually a matter of doctrine. So with gay marriage, abortion, and contraceptives, so the church can teach authoritatively on both faith and morals, and the church has taught uh, definitively on gay marriage, the church has taught definitively on abortion, and the church has taught definitively on contraceptives. So no, those cannot change. Now with women priests, it's even more serious because this is not only a matter of 
uh, morals. It's also a matter of faith uh, when it comes to uh, Catholic dogma, when it comes to um, the sacrament of holy orders. So this also cannot change. And uh, John Paul, the Saint, uh, Saint John Paul II actually affirms this in saying that the church has no authority to um, to ordain women. So if if any bishop, if any bishop tried to ordain a woman, uh, a woman, a woman, um, it would be really tough because what, what, what would happen? I was thinking about this earlier, because basically with a lot of the Eucharistic services you go to, they use reserve host, which is a host that was consecrated at some other time, the tabernacle. So basically, if a bishop has a woman ordained in a certain diocese against the will of the church, you just can't really go to almost any service in that diocese anymore because it might be reserve host consecrated by that woman. Uh, so, yeah, you would have to really figure out uh, something else. And uh, SSPX, but you didn't hear me say that. So that that would that would be bad because yeah we have, we have bishops saying bad things we have them doing we have Belgian bishops and the German bishops but if they start ordaining women that's that's when things start to get serious because then uh, you have invalid sacraments. Random joke cannot explain Trinity therefore Islam. Okay, read Medieval Trinitarian Thought uh, from Aquinas to Occam by Russell L. Friedman. You know, I have that book in PDF. I have just not gotten the chance to read it. I have I've read a lot about uh, like Trinitarian dogmatics uh, in in particular, but not really a lot when it comes to uh, distinctives outside of the Thomistic school. Uh, obviously, except I've I've read uh, the sections of Scotus's Ordinatio about the procession of the Spirit and a bunch of stuff you guys don't want to know about okay so when people usually object to the trinity with certain things like the law of identity how i solve it or what books do i read to answer this okay so i am going to pull pull up a google doc right now so i can i can type this out for you so um i can't remember what the like ma, uh, logical problem of the trinity is maybe somebody I can't remember exactly how they formulate it. Uh, ma LPT. Ma LPT. Ma logical problem with the Trinity. Oh, man. Okay, let's see if I can do this without butchering it. I will just, I'll just, uh, I'll just guess. I think I remember the syllogism they use. It's really a soritis, it's not a syllogism, but. Okay, usually, can you see it? Yeah, there you go. I will make my screen bigger. So usually what they're going to say is, Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God, Father is not Son, uh, Son is not not spirit of what am I missing? Father is not spirit. And then in their and then they'll also say that there is exactly one God. Okay. So good question. So the, the error they make is with this term is right here that's used in these three. 
So when we say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, what they are assuming right here is what's called a nominal, merely nominal distinction. So a merely nominal distinction is going to be a distinction which is only in words. So by this, we're glossing the person of the Father, and by this, the essence of God. Now, between the person of the Father and the essence of God, there's not a real distinction. That is a distinction which is preceding, uh, preceding our intellect. But this is what's called a virtual distinction. So there's a, uh, a distinction between the two, but it's something with a foundation in the thing that does not uh, precede the, um, that is not antecedent to our thought about the thing. So that's, so there's actually virtual distinction between th these two. So why does that make it, uh, make this important? Because I'll just eliminate us, the talk about the spirit and, um, I will, I will make their conclusion, which is they say, well, therefore the father is the son, but that's not true. But the error in this reasoning is when you have a virtual distinction between um, between the subject and then the predicate of a certain sentence, and then you have these two premises, there can actually be a real distinction in the conclusion. So if we think about it, like um, the 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 uh, analogy that Saint Thomas is Saint Thomas uses is you have um, a certain motion. And then you have the action of the motion and the passion of the motion. So if I have my, uh, no, I don't want to do that with my Bible, um, my prayer book. Dang it. Why can't I find like, oh, pack of gum. I have my pack of gum and I have this uh, pen right here. The pen hits the pack of gum. Now there's the action of the pen, which is the hitting. There's the passion of the, the uh, pack of gum being hit by the pen. There's also the motion of the pen. So between the action of the pen and then the um, and then the motion, entire motion considered in itself, there is not a real distinction. Uh, we, we can't there, there's no distinction before our mind. We, we abstract the uh, entire motion from the action of the pen. But between the action between the action of the pen hitting and the gum being hit, there actually is a real distinction. So there's a virtual distinction between the the motion and the hitting between the motion and the being hit, but there can be a real distinction between the being hit and hitting. So there's, there's my little, my little analogy right there. So that's why their argument doesn't work because this uh, assumes that these are identified in such a way as, um, as there's only a nominal distinction between them, but good question. And uh, I do, I should actually just do a whole video on this. Uh, because if you want to learn more about syllogisms, I do have my, my course on logic or where'd it go? Oh, it's back here. I do have my catechism on logic. And if you read the eight rules of syllogisms and you, which, which are in here, um, and you also read about all of the particular ways in which the terms work within premises and the way in which, um, premises work uh, one with another, it'll, it'll really help you out. And you'll see how this sophistry is uh, just destroyed. So yeah, you, it, it really, it really is difficult to, to have to explain this uh, because you need sort of a bit of a background in, in logic. Uh, what do you think would be the necessary steps for potential reunification between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? 
Um, I think it's a little too far for that, to be honest. Uh, I think what you're going to have is you're going to have to have either a uh, inane moving of the spirit where the various patriarchs and bishops decide to renounce their heresy and schism and come back to the church, or you're just going to have a lot of individuals have to have to come over and kind of play the, play the long game. Like we have, I don't think um, there it's, it's, we, we have, um, well, first the, the Orthodox have denied certain uh, clear dogmas of the faith. And then we have also defined uh, more since we have, since we, uh, since they have split off from us. So it's, it's very difficult things like after, especially after things like papal infallibility, like I think at the time of the council of Trent, it wouldn't have been too, too difficult. Uh, it would have been a little bit, uh, a few things, but at Council of Trent, not too difficult. But after Vatican I, uh, definitely is a lot more difficult. Oh, Lexi is here. Hi, Lexi. <laughs> Can you comment on the Orthodox claim that imagination in prayer is bad? Actually, my wife and I were talking about it last night um, because she was asking about, I just bought uh, that crucifix and it's, it's actually right up there. And she was asking about certain Puritans who deny that you can even imagine images of Christ. Uh, and that would be positively sinful. So I think the Orthodox have taken uh, taken something from the Puritans or something. I have I have no idea why that was ever a, a rational option. Um, you if you if you think about because the way in which um, ideas work, we have what's called uh, we have generally what's called simple apprehension. So if I apprehend the idea of triangularity itself, and then I also can have what are called phantasms. So phantasms are not thinking of triangularity in itself. Like if I thought of a pen in itself and then uh, my phantasm would be, maybe I think about this certain pen, which is this big and this color. And I think of all the accidents that come with it. So necessarily you're not going to just have like simple apprehensions when it comes to prayer. You're going to have phantasms that you're making certain uh, judgments about within your intellect. So it's, it's just ridiculous to even, to even pretend this because you're going to have certain material accidents when it comes to the way in which you think about things. Like if you think about if I think about my coffee cup down there, I'm going to have to necessarily think about it with with certain material accidents. So I think it might just be I don't, I don't think that's like technical orthodox doctrine or anything. I think it's just a few schizos online who are saying something about it. Uh, basically, what I'm asking is if it's okay to laugh a bit at the way a person who's already making bad points awkwardly reads them from a cue card. Is that disparaging or why? Well, what I'll generally say is uh, if you're asking me, this is probably against your conscience. You probably shouldn't do it. So. Uh, how do we reconcile all statements in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and Galatians 3, 13? Okay. Uh, first, I have to know what First Corinthians twelve three is. Okay, sorry guys, do not have the whole Bible memorized. Okay, so First Corinthians twelve three. Wherefore 
I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And Galatians 3.13. I always read from the KJV, Seething Cope. The Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. I don't get uh, what the what the uh, so I think oh, oh oh yeah so I think when it comes to the first one it's talking about uh, calling Jesus accursed in a in a certain blasphemous uh, manner of saying something intrinsically about him. Whoa, what is this ad going on down here? That's a terrible ad. Where the second one uh, specifically talking about the redeeming from the curse of the law. And being made a curse for us. This is specifically uh, speaking in a in a um, judicial manner. But um, I've n- I've never heard that objection before. You you've kind of got me off guard. I'm kind of curious. You guys are going to see my research pro- process right now. That was just my first thought. So I'm um, looking at. You know, a lot of people actually ask specifically about what Galatians three thirteen means. So. This might be a good one just to just talk about. So Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. We're going to be specifically looking at this. I've explained the curse brought on us by the law as well as the law's incapacity to deliver from sin. He now shows forth Christ's power to set one free from the curse. First, he shows how through Christ we're set free from the curse. And then uh, blah. And then first, he presents the author of the liberation. Second, the manner of liberation. And then third, the testimony of the prophet. So we're going to specifically talk about the author of the liberation, which is obviously Jesus Christ, and the manner of the liberation, which is being made a curse for us. So therefore, he says, first, all who observe the works of the law were under the curse, as has been said, and they could not be delivered by the law. Hence, it was necessary to have someone who should set us free, and that someone was Christ. Hence, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, for the law could not do God sending his own son, i.e. Christ. He has redeemed, I say, us, namely the Jews, with his own precious blood, uh, from the curse of the law, i.e. from guilt and penalty, that he might deliver us from who were under the law. So by the curse of the law, here, yes, exactly, judicially. So here he's talking about the guilt and the penalty of the law. Then when he says being made for uh, a curse for us, he sets forth the manner of this deliverance. Here it should be noted that a curse is that which is said as an evil. Now it is according to two kinds of evil that there could be two kinds of curses, namely the curse of guilt and the curse of punishment. What? St. Thomas, this is glorious. I, I, don't, I don't even remember him doing this, but he's making the exact distinction to answer your question. So the curse of guilt is really what we talked about uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 12. And the curse of punishment is what's being talk, uh, spoken of here. And with respect to each for uh, this passage can be read, namely he has made a curse for us. Second, it is explained with respect to the evil of punishment for Christ, just from the punishment by enduring our punishment and our death, which came upon us from the very curse of sin. For inasmuch as he endured this curse of sin by dying for us, he is said to have been made a curse for us. Boom. There you go. Glorious. I wonder if he actually brings up the text. I don't think he does. Yeah, but I'm reading, I'm actually reading through Thomas's Galatians commentary right now right now and i'm in chapter two so st thomas's scriptural commentaries are really good 
if you had the power, would you abolish the Novus Ordo without worrying about priests having to learn to celebrate the TLM? I would ordinary it form. I, I like the ordinary one. That's my hottest take um, relative to the Catholic faith is that I like the ordinary uh, form better than I like the TLM. Oh, man, you're forcing me. He's a YouTube member, so he's forcing me to answer this question. By the way, Mr. Wagner, what's your take on depictions of God the Father in old paintings? Well, I think it's completely fine because what we have to remember is that we depict our Lord Jesus Christ. We are depicting the second person of the Trinity. That's the subject of depiction. And we're depicting him properly in accordance with his humanity because the second person of the Trinity is made visible in the incarnation. So we could say that uh, God became man that we might know God or we might see God. St. Thomas uh, describes it uh, that one of the reasons for the incarnation is that even little children can know God, something which was uh, Im impossible even for the greatest of the philosophers. So when it comes to the Father, uh, you see throughout the Gospels that really the incarnation is the point of revelation for the Trinity, that the Father is revealed in the Son. So we depict the Father as an old man or uh, or, or something to that. We, what, what we're doing is we're not properly depicting the Father as we do our Lord Jesus Christ through the flesh that he's taken on. Rather, we're doing so improperly and then after some sort of relation. So we're depicting him relative to the Son. So uh, there, there's a distinction between what we're doing with the Father and then with the Son. If we were saying that this is the Father in that this is the Father's flesh, that would be blasphemous. But if we're saying this is the Father in that the Son reveals the Father as being Father uh, relative to him, then yeah, that's fine. But we have to realize that we're doing something different when we depict the two. And Hassan and I will, will forever fight about this. Sophistic answers. So what's this one? With denominations such, Protestants who don't believe the bread and wine is literal, or Protestant or modern modalism or orthodox, can we say they're going to hell or they might go to hell? Um, why are you making a distinction between uh, Protestants who deny some dogmas of the faith and Protestants who deny more dogmas of the faith? What what you tell what you tell Protestants, what I tell Protestants when they ask me like, "Hey, I'm in in Roman Catholicism, my good, my good, will I will I go to hell?" That's that's a comment uh, that you get all the time. What you say is you say that I cannot give you any assurance in your current state about. Uh, your membership in the Church of Christ. That's all you say. Is you can't make a definitive negative judgment, but what you can say is that you cannot give a positive judgment, as you would be able to when somebody is a Catholic who is uh, giving certain certain outward signs of um, of regeneration. So that's always how how I went at it. Oh man, so many questions. So is there anything illicit in burying a body without a coffin? I have no idea. So good question. Is there a sharing or communication of attributes between the two natures of Christ? 
Some reforms say that the divine Lagos is fully united to, but never fully contained with the human nature. So there is no communication of attributes. Okay. So think of it this way. There is a certain greater participation in grace uh, called the grace of union between the, between the humanity of Christ and then the divinity. So it's something which is supernatural, that is above the exigencies of all nature. So we can think of the humanity of Christ as being divinized or some sort of theosis, which is occurring, but it doesn't transcend the limits of those uh, attributes which are uniquely divine, like we would think of uh, ubiquity, or as most people know it, uh, omnipresence, or or something like that, or an absolute omniscience. Rather, in Christ, we speak of a relative omniscience. That is, he knows all that a human may know, um, all that is within the limits of a, a human intellect. So yes and no, uh, depends on how you're talking about it. But really, all of these discussions, the reason why the Lutherans and the Reformed, I think, are so confused over this question they can't really agree is they don't have the correct and Catholic notion of grace. Uh, and they also don't have a correct and Catholic notion of the distinction between nature and supernature. Uh, another clip I had in mind is a guy watching an absurd kid preacher on Oprah who, when asked to interpret his own preaching, had a really funny surprise look on his face to which the guy said uh, that his face looks like he's saying, I'm not prepared to do this, and laughed a little bit at it. Is this okay or is it disparaging, uncharitable? I think it's fine. What do you think? I got no idea. I'm sorry, dude. Okay, how would uh, – uh, how would – would you ever do a Bible study series on the Gospel of John? Good question. Uh, actually, I've been thinking about this. So um, the way in which I'm envisioning uh, scholastic answers in the in the future, the, the type of stuff I want to do. So obviously, I want to have like free, open public content like this, like Q&As, uh, random streams, interviews, wh whatever I'm feeling. I've been doing a lot of personal work recently, so I haven't been able to do too much. So I hope um, I hope you guys aren't too too annoyed at that. But the way in which I'm envisioning in the future is I really want to provide courses like I have done with my course on logic. Right now I'm working on a course on metaphysics of just introductory, um, mid and advanced stuff on philosophy. And then also videos commenting on, uh, on the Summa and then other works of St. Thomas. And I also do actually want to get into uh, biblical commentary following the classical method of following the, the medieval class. So, yeah, I, I, I do think I would love to do a commentary series on John, which would basically follow St. Thomas's commentary on John, because this is this is something that you'll get a lot from medieval authors. But theology has to include uh, commenting on the sacred page. It can't just be commenting on the secondary works such as the Summa or uh, Lombard sentences or uh, whatever it may be. There has to be serious encounters with sacred scripture. And I've been doing that a lot more in my personal life recently. Um, just a lot of scriptural memorization I've been doing, uh, a lot of study after the, and a lot of scriptural meditation and stuff like that. So I would like to be a positive influence in that direction uh, when it comes to Catholics uh, reading their Bibles and also Catholics not 
not reading scripture like you would uh, a Protestant, because there is a completely unique way of reading scripture that is Catholic and not Protestant. So uh, if only the person of the son united himself to a human nature and something is only divine insofar as it has a human nature, isn't it trivial then that nothing divine became human? Uh, part two, uh, since we're considering the hypostasis of the son distinct from his divinity, it seems the hypostasis in the human nature isn't divine becoming human. Why, why would that follow? Because the the nature isn't the subject of incarnation and the hypostasis is. Why would that be? Why would that be a problem? Since we're considering the hypostasis of the son distinct from his divinity. Why would you consider the hypostasis of the son distinct from his divinity? It seems the hypostasis in the human nature isn't divine becoming human. I'm very confused by the question. What's the best site to buy icons? I like, well, icons are actually, uh, are actually cringe Byzantine impositions on beautiful Western art. So become a statue and art lover like myself. These were all just art.com. So, although I do keep a thurible on my desk, which is an interesting piece. Oh, there you go. Tradcat Media. Is there any, uh, I'm assuming you've been, are there any, are there any Thomistic Marian writers that you like? Is there any well-known Mariologists within, among Thomists that you know? Yes, yes, there actually is. So uh, you may have heard that this guy before. I haven't mentioned him much, but Father Reginald Marie Garrigou Lagrange. He has a wonderful, um, wonderful work. And he, in Garrigou Lagrange was huge actually on Mariology. Most people don't really know that. Of him, but every if you look at every single one of his works, every single one of his works are actually dedicated to Our Lady. So the Mother of Our Savior uh, and our interior life. This may sound like it's a devotional work, but it's actually I'm going to share my screen. It's actually a theological work, uh, which uh, I was actually surprised when I first picked it up. I didn't think to read it, but I read it and I was very surprised. So the table of contents. He does. Uh, cover everything in Mariology. So plenitudes of graces, um, the divine maternity, predestination of Mary, um, and really everything. And nativity, virginal conception, perpetual virginity, virtues, beatitude, uh, her universal, her as mediatrix, her as co-redemptrix, really everything. Her queenship, like this is this is serious. And what I thought was the best, what I thought was really cool, is he actually has a section on Josephology too, here near the end. So you don't really get that much in classical authors talking about Josephology. So yes. Uh Father Reginald Marie Garrigou Lagrange. Some 
some find it boring to see God's nature is essentially analogous to intellect and will, which makes people think of bodiless minds, but also because it lacks other properties such as color. So God isn't as rich as he would be if he had a body or many other properties beyond the intellectual ones. What do you think? Well, you have to look at the perfections of being uh, as such and uh, being body that is finitude and corporeality uh, that that doesn't necessarily um, include the perfection of a thing. And it's actually like things like mutability that come along with having a body and stuff would make God imperfect. So the reason we talk about him being analogous to intellect and will, if you want to put it like that, is because if he wasn't, then he wouldn't be God. Okay. What do you think is going to be the end result of the Synod? Pope Pius XIII is going to rise again and debunk the Novus Ordo and the TLM is going to rule over all again. And we're going to get Vatican III, which is going to debunk Vatican II. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea. Will you publicly give your obedience to ecumenical patriarch Lofton and Saint Akathis to Saint to Gregory Palamas? No, sorry. Uh, since there's no penalty without guilt, uh, so guilt and penalty are inseparable. Wouldn't this mean confession can't just fully remove guilt, but only partially, since punishing the guiltless is bad? No, because we speak of guilt in multiple different ways. And really, uh, confession is completely removing the guilt uh, in, a, in a sort of juridical way. But there is the what we speak of as the temporal um, effects or temporal punishment or whatever you want to speak of. Uh, it would be like um, if you get into a fight with your wife, actually, if you're watching, if, you, if, if it's uh, if it's. 320 and you're watching me right now during a Q&A, you're probably not married. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, get in a, you get in a fight with your mom. Let, let me put it like that. So you get in a fight with your mom and uh, you have a bad argument and afterwards you forgive each other. Now, is your relationship restored to what it was before? No. Because there's a certain there's there's a certain damage that injustice does to the subjects uh, and uh, the objects of injustice that needs to be uh, remitted and needs to be brought back. So there's a certain equality again. So, yeah. So even, even when there's the removal of guilt that, and uh, also uh, to your, to your question, your um, sacramental penance is, uh, is not necessary for the validity of the sacrament. So. I am still shocked anyone trusts or doesn't see through this so-called Pope. Wow. Wow. So cool. I'm still shocked that I haven't blocked you by now. Blocked. Debunked. Destroyed. Don't speak against the Holy Father. You get blocked. Okay. So what is your take on music? Are some music forms inherently good or bad? To put it humorously, are rock and rap of the devil. Yes, some music forms are inherently good or bad. Beauty is is something which is not subjective. Well, 
beauty is something which is objective and that it's a certain uh, participation in being that is better better conformed to to the really it's kind of a mixture between uh, truth and goodness so it's really better conformed to the appetite and also to the intellect so there is like an objective value of beauty so yes some versions of uh, music in that they don't have a certain simplicity and harmony are bad so, but yeah I, I haven't done much reading on aesthetics, but I think uh, a good like mini course on aesthetics would be fun because not many people think about aesthetics. But yeah, St. Thomas has some stuff to say about aesthetics. But what we do know is beauty, one, is not a transcendental, properly speaking. Um, and simply, beauty is not a transcendental. It's not truth, goodness, and beauty. It's truth, goodness, unity, thingness, so, and also otherness. So uh, what would you recommend for a gift for a newly ordained priest to help him perform his duties to his parish? I'd get him a case of Guinness, to be honest. I think that'd be a good idea. Unironically. Priests love it when you buy them. Or like a nice bottle of port or something. They love it. They love it when you buy stuff like that for them. <laughs> if you can, vestments or vessels. Jewels, vestments or vessels, me, port. Okay, so how does one deal with lust or addicting habits? Uh, just watch Father Ripperger. Uh, just type in Father Chad Ripperger and then look at, uh, he might have some, I think he has stuff on lust or uh, his stuff on virtues or something. That's going to be much better than me giving you my five minutes feel. Uh, if you were to teach at a Catholic university, would you teach primarily theology or philosophy? If one day I was able to teach at a Catholic university, I don't think that's going to happen one day, but I don't know. I don't think I would want to, because then there's a certain like constraining force, you know, of, of, uh, of what, like what you are and aren't allowed to say, which not fun. I mean, the, I follow the constraining force of like, like what the church has recommended when it comes to teaching theology. Like I've read that stuff, like the, like the way in which the canons have been applied, but, um, but like there's weird oversight when it comes to some of the uh, bishops that are charged with it, which I just don't want to, don't want to mess with. But if I had to probably, probably theology, um, because with theology, you can, as you go along, really make up uh, a lot of lost ground with philosophy. But even if you make somebody just absolutely great philosophers, if they don't have good theology, then it's going to kind of suck. So would the attribution of being become univocal if we consider only contingent objects? No. It would not. And by contingent objects, he's talking about a created being or being which exists ab alio, that is in another and not in in itself. So when it comes to uh, these contingent objects, being is actually still used analogously because things like accident can be being things like beings of reason can also be like even we can speak of uh, privations technically as uh, 
beings of of reason. Some of the scholastic philosophers will talk about that. So it would still there's still an, an analogous sense since being is not a genus. Uh, being is something which is um, univocally spoken of. My chair just broke. I'll save my chair. Devil hates metaphysics. Trying to get me to stop. Oh man, what is this? It's not letting me put up another one. Oh. <laughs> Christian really do be shaming us for being single. I'm not shaming. I respect it. <laughs> How much more income do you need to get a new camera, better internet? Um, well, so it's actually my internet. I don't think my internet's bad. I think my internet's fine. I never have had problems with internet. I think it's just like StreamYard as a service. So I think eventually I'll probably switch to something else. But with my camera, yes, my camera is bad because it is the the webcam on my laptop. But I was I was considering buying a new webcam. Uh, and I was actually about to pull the trigger on one when I bought my my new mic. If you remember, I had my, my old mic. It's somewhere around here. But uh, what's stopping me from getting a new webcam is I need a new laptop eventually, soon. Probably like in the next few months, I'll be getting it. So once I get my new laptop, I'll I'll get a it, – it'll be a uh, like a 2022 Mac. So I'm thinking the, the camera quality will probably just be good enough uh, at that point. Since, you know, that's just, this is like, I think I have like a 2015 Mac right now. So it's just, it just doesn't work. Have I read any of uh, Blessed uh, Dennis the Carthusian? Have not. What? You're having you're having problem understanding. Wait, doesn't confession truly remove some part of guilt in the strict sense of that which makes you not innocent? Any guilt that merits penalty is guilt that innocence opposes. And so temporary guilt means temporary penalty innocence also opposes. So it seems confession does make you more innocent, at least uh, a bit, and so guiltless, not deserving penalty. I'm not sure what you're uh what you're you're talking about, my guy. Because it uh, it just uh, so when it comes to eternal punishment and the temporal effects of punishment, those are com two completely different species of guilt. Um, uh, and and really, the temporal effects is only used as as guilt in an analogous and an improper sense, not in a proper sense. So. Uh, is salvation offered to all in some form or fashion according to Aquinas, or is it solely for the predestined? Well, really, this question was actually treated more so uh, once you get into the sufficient uh, grace debates following the Council of Trent. But the Thomists have always said that salvation is offered to all and that sufficient grace is given to all. I feel like I've actually skipped over some. 
If I've skipped over some, it probably wasn't too, too important. Will the Supreme Pontiff Christian ever have ecumenical dialogue with Patriarch Michael of Reason and Theology? I'm open. What good books are there on the beatific vision? I know. Took me a second to think of one. There we go. Uh, not Beatitude. It's... Ah, oh, there it is. So, Father Gary Gu Lagrange, His Life Everlasting, or it's called His Theological Treatise on the Four Last Things. That is a good one. So. Some ortho bro made a video you, on you. Yes, I'm aware. So how do how's temporal guilt only analogous to eternal guilt? Since they both deserve penalty and justice, they both fall under the category of retributive justice. So when it comes to uh, uh, no, I was saying the temporal guilt as it is something which is a a consequence of the action itself, um, and it's not something which. Uh, is so so therefore it's only analogous to to guilt not analogous to eternal guilt so do we have free will or free agency yes we have free will in that uh, the way in which Thomas is going to define free will is that free will is the ability to specify the act of our will to a certain lesser good. So if we have in front of us the, uh, I don't know, the fact of whether I want to read the Holy Bible or I want to read St. Gregory's Prayer Book, which one am I going to read? These are uh, two lesser goods. They're not uh, complete goodness subsisting in itself, which would be God. So I have a choice between whether I want to choose this or choose that. Or it could be um, whether I want to choose to write with this pen or I want to choose to write with that pen. So the ability to specify my will to this or that, that is what free will is. Free will isn't the fact that God as first mover and first cause are not at all involved in our choices. That is not what it is. It is only about the specification of our will to a certain object. Free will. You should know better. So, uh, and I'm not, I'm just going to make an example out of you. Somebody asked, how does one reconcile the traditional Catholic position with the death penalty, the statements made by the current pontificate? I do not speak against the Holy Father in public. So I will not answer that question. So anybody out there who wants to, Ask me about uh, the latest Vatican news. I will not be answering your question. So even if you give me an $100 super chat and become a member, whatever it may be, I do not answer questions about the Holy Father. So is voting at various levels, local, state, federal, a moral obligation for Catholics? Not necessarily. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a, something which you're morally obliged to do on pain of sin. But it can become so. Uh, so a certain a certain example. Uh, 
uh, as as the as the head of a household, uh, you are a certain participant in the political life of a certain country. Now, uh, you have an, a certain obligation to those below you when it comes to leading them towards goodness. And then also you act as a kind of mediator between them and then the rest of the political economy. So if you had a lawgiver, uh, let's say a local mayor, who they ran on the fact that they are going to murder your family when they're elected, you have a moral obligation to vote against them and obviously to, to do other stuff by any means necessary. So uh, if in certain cases, uh, your participation in the political life can become obligatory. So why do you think it's necessary to get the recent set of Kantism debate deleted? The reason I say that is because I believe in traditional Catholic political teaching. So when it comes to material that is going to be harmful for souls, it ought to be destroyed. And uh, there ought to be some penalty for the people that produce it. Not saying that we should throw Pontius Aquinas in jail. You can't really do it after the fact and everything like that. But there should be a restriction of such material that puts people at people's souls at risk. And that debate is particularly going to put souls at risk. So if you ever consider becoming a Jesuit, that would be awkward considering I'm married. No, I haven't considered becoming a Jesuit. Do you, uh, some people not agree with the way in which St. John Paul II constructed theology of the body. Yes, but he comes from some very bad readings. So Hassan and I, uh, actually Hassan was really ranting to me about this, but really the way in which most people read theology of the body is really disgusting way. It's like kind of like washed over like American evangelical sexual ethics where it's like anything goes sort of thing. It's, it's just, it's just disgusting. But if you read holistically the writings of St. John Paul II, he does make it very clear that there, there needs to be marital temperance and chastity, even within, uh, within marriage, not a kind of anything goes uh, free for all, which a lot of people like to characterize um, sexual ethics as being. So that's not what John Paul II, there was, the, John Paul II wasn't leading a sexual revolution. John Paul II was clarifying and communicating the traditional teaching of the church. Although in some places, like uh, speaking about um, his, specifically his interpretation of Ephesians 5 wasn't the best. What is your view on Eastern Catholics venerating saints who dine outside communion with Rome like Mark of Ephesus? Well, specifically, people ask me about Palamas all the time, and I've given there's a whole clip about me talking about Palamas. But specifically, when it comes to Mark of Ephesus, Mark of Ephesus was a wicked, wicked man and a, a uh, just a very awful man. Uh, he almost single handedly uh, really did lead millions of souls into schism with the Apostolic See through his own stubbornness and pride. It was very clear at the debates at Florence that the Latins completely wiped the floor with the Greeks. Uh, we, we were able to have the teaching of the Latin and Greek fathers put forth with clarity and with truth and with succinctness, and we had an agreement. But Mark of Ephesus was a prideful man who was addicted to his own schism and heresy. 
So uh, to to venerate a man like Mark of Ephesus is is really disgusting for a for a uh, for a Catholic in communion with the Holy Father to do. What's the chance in our lifetime that we see Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, and Roman Catholic become one church? Not likely. If there are fundamentally different ways of being, isn't there a need for a more fundamental principle of being, which is one to ground the being of this different principles of being? No, because being is that principle. So I think you've, I'm trying, trying to think about how to, how to express this, but no, the, 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 um, the ground that you're thinking of and the principle that you're thinking of is being, uh, itself. And, uh, the different expressions are, uh, analogous modes of being. Is freedom of speech a backdoor to pornography and blasphemy? Yes. Uh, do you accept geocentrism? Yes. Yes, I do. So I think we can distinguish between scientific and then uh, theological geocentrism. So with scientific geocentrism, you're you're trying to make a certain claim about the center of the universe. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's really something that can be known uh, by natural reason, and I don't even think it really matters uh, because of uh, the way in which relativity works, uh, relative motion to other objects. Like, technically, me moving my hand under over this mic. If you're speaking relative to my hand, technically, the entire universe is moving around my hand, and, and such uh, such paradoxes like that. When it comes to theological geocentrism, you're saying that the Earth is the center. Uh, of all of God's creative activity. And from the perspective of the earth, it ought to be regarded as that center, which everything that moves around, like my hand is the center of the whole universe, and the whole universe moving around my hand. We ought to denote the earth as, uh, as center because that's the place where our Lord Jesus Christ became incarnate. And that's the center of God's creative and redemptive activities. And then, yes, of course, we can speak of geocentrism in that sense. And it would be impious to say that uh, we're uh, that the universe is not geocentrist in that sense. Yeah, I am less zealous than militant emotional censorship. I liken it to allowing a debate on whether children should drink bleach on C-SPAN. Exactly. Yes, yes. Because Sarah from Franciscan has never, ever, ever heard of sedevacantism. And now Sarah from San Franciscan has watched a debate where she saw uh, Castman get raked over the coals. So Sarah from Franciscan is going to start watching some diamond videos and probably become sedevacantist. Not good. Is there anything in contemporary ontology that makes you diverge from Thomism in some point? No. Okay. So I saw you once say that Henry VIII didn't start the Anglican church for a divorce. Though there might be underlying political issues, would not the divorce be the primary one? No, not really. The divorce was really, and, and it wasn't really a divorce. It was more of an annulment, which 
again, annulment uh, in, in this case was practically being used for a, a divorce. Uh, so when it came to the underlying political issues that were really the fuel behind the fire in the in the English. So among the English, there had been for many centuries, this sort of battle between church and state that you had going on. And really what the Reformation in England was, was a continuation of that battle between the church and the state, or really between what they would see as the foreign occupiers of the papistry. Although, uh, if they're going to be perfectly honest, uh, a lot of the battles between church and state had to do with local clergy who were battling uh, the state. So it wasn't like there was some imposition of foreign power upon Eng the English realm. But really, the Reformation was a continuation of that debate uh, occurring in England. So it's so really, it's not as simple as uh, there was nothing before the Reformation. They just made everything up, and then it was just boom out of thin air. Nobody ever thought of this stuff, and, and so on and so forth. You had thinkers, um, thinkers for centuries, saying a lot of the stuff that the reformers were saying. Uh, it's just that they happened to take a. Uh, they happen to develop off the wrong branch of medieval theology, a heretical branch. Uh, do you have any particular prayer books that you use? Yes. The two major ones I use, and they're both on my desk, is St. Gregory's prayer book. I usually like to use this for the mass prayers. Uh, so uh, my favorite two is they have a little liturgy before and after mass, which I like to do. But if I'm in a, if I'm in a pinch, the two prayers to always pray before and after mass the one to pray before is the prayer of saint thomas aquinas you can just find that online and the one to pray after if you don't pray this after uh do this will uh and i mean this in all honesty this will change your life the prayer of saint bonaventure uh the prayer of saint bonaventure is just beautiful to pray after mass and then some of the occasional devotions it has like devotions for the blessed sacrament devotions of our lady it also has devotions for um some of the times during the year so it's nice like uh maybe the week before pentecost to do some of the devotions they have like the novena for the coming of the holy spirit before pentecost or some of the devotions they have for the triduum so it, it's it's nice uh to have a book of devotions for occasional stuff and then for my day-to-day -day, uh since i am ordinary at uh divine worship daily office i pray my hours and which reminds me uh it i i was live streaming during uh, non, so I didn't get to pray non, so I'll make sure I need to remember to do that afterwards. But yeah, those are really the two that I use. Um, uh, I have a pretty uh, vanilla ordinary devotional life. And uh, specifically, uh, and I think that this is something important for everybody, I do have my morning readings that I do right in the morning. So uh, studying a certain section of sacred scripture, everybody should be studying a section of sacred scripture. Uh, try to uh, imbibe uh, what it's saying, uh, something slowly and meditatively. Uh, also, I have, uh, I read a section from the Catechism of the Catholic Church every morning, uh, really trying to conform my mind to uh, the church. And then also I read a section of some spiritual books. So right now I'm reading through the, the works of St. John of the Cross, and I'm reading The Flame and Fire of Love. So, and then also to, to pair that spiritual reading with mental prayer and, and uh, contemplation. What's my favorite video editing software? iMovie. Duh. Do you think the next Pope will call for a revivalist scholasticism? I hope. Um, 
because Fidesz at Ratio by St. John Paul II really was trying to be, um, try, it was John, St. John Paul II trying to be a new Leo XIII with attorney Patris. But it, it, it didn't really uh, cause the same revival of scholasticism, unfortunately. Did your family believe in mainstream evangelical eschatology? Yes. And what do you think about those beliefs looking back on them? I think they're really wrong. Uh, I really, I, when I was still a Protestant, I abandoned a lot of those. Dispensationalism is not good. Okay. I'm going to look through to see. Yes, the uh, the prayer for St. Thomas after Mass is in here. I usually pray that, but I always pray the prayer of St. Bonaventure. <laughs> you didn't pray none. I guess you missed nothing. Funny. Okay, so I don't see anything else. So, Lexi... If you're out there listening to this right now, I hope this was enough questions for you now to make clips. Uh, and I hope everybody out there asked good enough questions. So it's it's all on you guys if the questions aren't good enough because because Lexi Lexi's going to get us if we if we uh, I'll be I'll be having to do Q and A's like every twice a day morning and evening until I get the perfect clips uh, for 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 my sh for my short videos. So. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, remember, if you haven't picked up a copy, to pick up a copy of the Little Catechismal Logic. If you want some more training in logic, go to christianbwagner.com. Look at the Courses tab because I do have up there um, a course on logic that includes the Little Catechismal Logic. So you get everything. And you also get Father Copen's textbook on logic. Everything's there. So uh, really, um, it's only 10 bucks and you get everything. So it really is a really is a steal. So make sure you go over there, uh, pick that up and I will talk to you guys later. God bless.